This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good to see you all. I'm just going to scroll through once and see who's here. Wonderful. Even my mom made it. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to start with a Zen story that I think most of us or many of us are familiar with. um, And then maybe take it in a slightly different direction today, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. So Zhaozhou asked uh, Nanchuan, what is the Tao? Nanchuan said, ordinary mind is Tao, or is the Tao. Zhaozhou asked, should I try to direct myself Mm -hmm. towards it? Nanchuan said, if you try to direct yourself, you betray your own practice. Zhaozhou asked, how can I know the Tao if I don't direct myself? Nanchuan said, the Tao is not subject to knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is blankness. If you truly reach the genuine Tao, you will find it as vast and boundless as outer space. How can this be discussed at the level of affirmation and negation? With these words, Zhao Zhou had sudden realization. So that was uh, Robert Aiken's translation. Um, and these are two of the sort of biggest figures in Zen lore. Zhao Zhou, who went on to become a, a great teacher himself, uh, was, I believe, only you know, 18 or 19 when he had this conversation with uh, Nanshuan. So ordinary mind is the Tao. I think this um, phrase gets talked a lot about um, in our lineage in particular. But I think for the purposes of today's talk, I want to make the distinction that we also often make, which is that mind can be, um, most likely is uh, a translation for something that's closer to body-mind, or maybe even the totality of our felt experience. So it's inclusive of our our thinking mind, but also our feelings, our emotions. So yeah, it's important to maybe not get caught in the word mind and think this is about uh, the Tao is just all of the thoughts in our head. Although I'm not saying it's not that bad either, but I think it's more inclusive than that. So when I was preparing for this talk, um, I was asking a few people what they would um, like me to talk about or um, you know, what's kind of up in their practice. Um, and one person replied that, uh, that they didn't want me to talk about the pandemic. They've had enough with the pandemic. Um, and I understood that. I think, um, I think often we come to practice and places of practice as refuge from all of the horrors that we know so well in the world and in our lives. 
So hopefully I, uh, I won't directly talk about the world situation, but I'm, I'm hopeful that this talk will uh, be of some benefit to, to you and your, your practice uh, during this time. So I guess the reason I wanted to include the translation of ordinary mind as ordinary body mind or ordinary holistic experience is because in, in my, my own experience um, in the last few weeks and in pe with people that I've spoken with, um, for whatever reason, the kind of staying at home, the um, tightening of our circle of contacts and people that we're with seems to have had some effect in um, bringing uh, sort of our emotional life to the fore. And particularly if we have a kind of um, predisposition to a certain emotion. I think in my own life, uh, I often feel like I return to sadness as the, as the emotion that accompanies me somehow in this life. But I have lots of friends who um, fear and anxiety is the kind of one that comes up repeatedly, you know. And of course, we all experience all of these feelings and emotions. But there's something about this moment that I, I know some people in my life here that are kind of reckoning with this part of themselves. And so when I started thinking about, you know, giving a talk, um, about how we practice with our emotional body-mind, our emotional life. And I'll use the word emotion, I think, in this talk, but I, I think I mean even broader, like, felt sense of our experience. And that's why the body is so important. I think we, we actually feel tangibly our experience of just this moment, often most clearly through the body. And I often think of emotions as a kind of bodily thing, um, as, uh, you know, just the energies of our life force bouncing around in this particular skin bag. And that our mind gets involved often secondarily, you know, that there's a kind of a feeling of discomfort or unease or something that can arise, uh, you know, prior to any thought about it. And then um, often our mind or our thoughts kind of attach a, a story onto it or a label, you know, oh, this is sadness. This, whatever this unease is, this feeling that's kind of come into my experience, oh, I'll call that sadness. That's sort of the involvement of the mind. Um, <clears throat> or the thinking mind. And of course it can work the other way around too. I mean, I, we are this one kind of interconnected thing of feelings and emotions and sensations and thoughts. So I'm not saying it, it has to originate with the body, but I think that's often where I find it most workable. So when I started to kind of look around for, um, 
you know, advice on this particular topic, I was impressed at the sort of strength of conviction, especially with Suzuki Roshi, that this is Zen practice. Like this is, um, <clears throat> this is Dogen's way actually to investigate the, the sort of energies in our body, how they affect the way we see the world and see others. So I'm going to read a Suzuki Roshi, uh, bits of a Suzuki Roshi talk in a moment, but I wanted to share this. Um, the Dalai Lama came out with a, um, a kind of letter to the world about the current situation that we're in. Um, and I was touched by a particular paragraph. He says, from the Buddhist perspective, every sentient being is acquainted with suffering and the truth of sickness, old age, and death. But as human beings, we have the capacity to use our minds to conquer anger and panic and greed. He says, in recent years, I have been stressing, quote, emotional disarmament, unquote, to try to see things realistically and clearly without the confusion of fear or rage. If a problem has a solution, we must work to find it. If it does not, we need not waste time thinking about it. So that felt to me very clear and encouraging. But his stress, it, you know, his focus is on, I love the phrase, emotional disarmament. That taking responsibility or investigating our own emotional life is part of how we serve the world. An important part. And I think we can all see how fear and anger, you know, has a foothold in our world and disrupts our lives. So this is uh, Suzuki Roshi in a talk from uh, April of 1967. He starts out, he says, when, when your mind pervades all parts of your body, this is good practice. So even just that, you know, consider that as a practice instruction. How does my mind pervade my body? Can I allow this sort of intermixing of my thinking, sensing brain with the feeling emotional body? You know, can they kind of inform each other? Or am I trying to keep them separate in some way? <clears throat> He says, in such practice, body and mind are one. Neither is apart from the other. For example, in good practice, one's mudra will not be slack, nor will, nor will one's mouth hang open. And I don't know about you, but I, recently when I've sat down to, to do zazen, a kind of assessing of my body and where it's at, you know, kind of how, how much tension or stiffness is there. And recently I just noticed it's like, it's right here <laughs> um, in the jaw. And I think to me that, like noticing the tension in my jaw is this kind of 
my own unconscious battle of like um, keeping my mind separate from my body. And I actually do feel that when I kind of bring some attention to the jaw and relax it, that there's a kind of um, yeah, sense of unity um, or uh, interconnection, these two parts of my own experience. He says, you will have problems in your practice if you have doubts in it. How do we not have doubts? <laughs> um, but he says, trying to control your mind is only superficial effort. And it is effort, uh, and, it, and it, the effort, will be vain and endless. I think most of us know this because we've tried to control our minds, to corral our minds. Yeah, it being vain is one thing, but endless is sort of like, uh, maybe that's the final straw. <laughs> if I realize how endless it is to control my mind, that might help me give up that effort. This, this is again Suzuki Roshi. He says, in our life, there are three elements, uh, intellectual, emotional, and will. Uh, Buddhism does not emphasize intellectual understanding. But Buddhism does not ignore the intellect. And the intellect develops because of this lack of emphasis. Wow, I find that fascinating. Um, it's because we don't rely kind of so heavily on our thinking mind that our thinking mind can actually develop. It's an interesting way of, of putting it. He says, Zen Buddhism puts emphasis on the emotional faculties. That is why Zen emphasizes practice. Because we are so much made of emotions, we need to practice and to study and discipline them. So study and discipline them. That's interesting. I think there's always this fine line in practice of like trying to control or just some kind of apathy. Um, so he's saying, you know, we can't control our mind, but he's saying we need to discipline our emotions. So that seems to me like a kind of type of control or attempting to control. So this, this actually, this kind of fine line has been a koan um, in my own practice. And I think it, yeah. Because we are so much made of emotions, we need to practice, we need a practice to study and discipline them. Our emotions are deeply rooted in our true natures. Therefore, to correctly study our emotional problems, we need to understand our deeper selves. Religion is supported mainly by our emotional power. On the surface, emotions may seem very changeable, but this is only appearance. The depths of our emotional powers are stable. Through practice, we should understand the true nature of our emotional power. By this understanding, we should give up concern with our superficial emotional levels. 
understanding the true nature of emotional power should lead to transmutation of this power into will and the way-seeking mind. Thus what was once described as anger towards other becomes anger at one's own stupidity and increased willpower. It is relationship to emotional power that is the most important part of our practice. Our practice should be directed toward our basic emotional problems, not towards our superficial emotional concerns and hangups. And at the end of the talk, the very first student who raised their hand asks him to sort of distinguish, what do you mean is the difference between our basic emotional problems and our emotional hangups? And he says, our fundamental emotion is our desire to support our life. And I think he means our life, like to support all life, not just my life. Um, so our fundamental uh, emotion is, is our desire to support our life. One should not try to create an intellectual excuse for an emotion and its problems. Most people don't know what deep emotional powers or problems are. Most people are conscious only of superficial emotions. Though it may seem that rationality is stable and emotion unstable, the reverse is the truth. Deep emotion is much more stable than is rationality. So, okay, you know, perhaps this is an important part of Zen life and practice is to, to not intellectualize, but to somehow understand our own emotional life. So I went to, um, uh, I guess I was, I didn't hear the talk. I, I read a talk by um, Sojin Mel Weitzman, who's the uh, abbot at the Berkeley Zen Center. And he gave this very clear explanation of emotional energy that I'd never considered, but, but kind of really um, resonated with me. And he used this metaphor that <clears throat> our kind of life force, our uh, sort of ground of our life energy, he equated to uh, a furnace, like a furnace in the basement. And then each individual emotion that we might feel or kind of flip-flop between or, uh, you know, our, our experiences of our life might evoke certain emotions. Sometimes it doesn't even seem to require a cue from the world, like our, just our mood changes. Um, but all of those different emotions, he, he sort of, uh, in this metaphor, were the ducks to the different rooms. So our basic life force is, uh, is just energy. You know, it's just some pulsing, some, some movement, something uh, we, we feel at a deep level. But it's only when it gets pumped you know, through a certain duct to a certain room that we experience it as sadness. Or in a different, you know, in a different room through a different duct, it's anxiety or anger 
So I think part of what practicing with emotion uh, can look like is tracing those ducks back to the to the furnace. So to notice that suddenly I'm kind of filled with sadness or anxiety or rage, whatever is, is kind of come into my, my awareness. To acknowledge that, and that's a big practice in itself. You know, sometimes we just feel uncomfortable and we don't even know what it is or what to call it, you know. Um, but maybe when we practice with our emotional life and we start to recognize its different forms, at least in this body and mind, a practice can be sort of tracing it back to the source of, oh, this is just uh, the root of our life. This is just kind of nameless, energetic movement in our body. And, you know, if we practice with that, we might start to kind of, prior to being kind of left in one room of anger or left in one room of sadness and noticing it, prior to that, we might actually just feel the kind of like um, increase of fuel in the furnace or something. Somebody put some logs or coal in the furnace. There's some kind of energy and its movement feels uncomfortable. Like, this doesn't, isn't really what I want to be doing right now or experiencing. You know, if we can notice at that level, we can actually kind of watch as it kind of morphs or transmutes into a particular emotion. And practicing in this way can give us a kind of relief uh, even though the energy may be uncomfortable. I think just feeling that discomfort with practice can actually be easier than all of the torment of, of its manifestation of, you know, deep and abiding sadness or just uncontrollable rage or the suffering of those might somehow be greater than just kind of staying with this discomfort of kind of being a shepherd of this discomfort or a witness. Okay, I, I feel something and I, I don't really like it. It's kind of uncomfortable, but okay, that's that's what's in my life right now. So my and Mako's um, teacher, Paul Holler, uh, often repeats this phrase of um, our practice is to uh, experience the experience that's being experienced. <laughs> there's a kind of, um, there's a non-dual hit there. It's not like me, it's not my experience, and I'm not naming what the experience is so much, but the emphasis is on both allowing, meaning like this is the experience 
that just happens to be in my life right now. So, okay, I can acknowledge that rather than battle it and say, I've got to change my, I've got to work to control it. And so to experience the experience that's being experienced, it's kind of, it's already here. It's already in my life. Can I open to it? Can I honor its arrival in my life, even if it's not something I want? So I feel like a lot of what I'm talking about is um, at the heart of Pema Chodron's practice and teachings. Um, and I really want to recommend this teeny little book. It's you know very short, um, but it's called Practicing Peace in Times of War. Uh, this is a Yeah, a, a Pem and Children book. And I think in it, she has a, one of the most succinct, succinct sort of explanations of practice that I've come across. And she says, uh, medita meditation <clears throat> teaches us how to open and relax with whatever arises without picking and choosing. It teaches us to experience the uneasiness and the urge fully and to interrupt the momentum of that, and to interrupt the momentum that usually follows. We do this by not following after thoughts and learn to return again and again to the present moment. To the present moment of just this experience, whatever it is right now. So I'll read that one more time. She says, meditation teaches us how to open and relax with whatever arises without picking and choosing. It teaches us to experience the uneasiness and the urge and the urge, whatever that urge that's come up, uh, to experience it fully and, to, in, uh, and to, to interrupt the momentum that usually follows. So there's a little glimpse at the the kind of control, the, the sort of boundary of like allowing and having some input or something. Um, <clears throat> so that, and I think here they're kind of beautifully um, the same thing. So just to experience what is arising, um, whatever uneasiness or urge I suddenly feel, to just experience it is in itself interrupting its momentum. And of course, you know, they call it practice for a reason. We're not, we're not per perfect at, at accomplishing this. So sometimes that uneasiness or that urge arises and we just sort of act it out without ever even recognizing what's happened. Um, but I think with practice, the more we recognize that uneasiness, and maybe the earlier we recognize that uneasiness, um, that in itself interrupts the momentum, the momentum to just do, to, to find some way to try and assuage that uneasiness. And we have so many ways of trying to do that. Sometimes they work even. But uh, the truth of impermanence, I think, is that 
all of our machinations and solutions to this feeling of uneasiness uh, will run out. <laughs> um, they won't always work. So can we set our life on something deeper and more likely to assuage our, our longing in some kind of more complete way. So I think uh, Bruce announced, or, or Choro, that, um, that we're going to try and uh, start having some ceremonies um, online. Um, and Choro, as our, um, our new Tonto, has been kind of investigating and, and reaching out to people in our kind of wider Zen community, um, trying to figure out if anybody's figured out how to do services online. Um, I think there's some technical aspects around the sound, uh, chanting somewhere and having people hear it at home and try and chant um, that, uh, yeah, we're still trying to look into. But anyway, regardless of how exactly we do it, we've um, kind of committed to, to trying to have some ceremonies through Zoom. And so this coming Wednesday, we're going to have a Bodhisattva ceremony, a full moon ceremony. Um, but a week later, on, on the 13th of May, um, we're hoping to celebrate the fourth uh, anniversary of our founding teacher here at Austin Zen Center, um, Zenke Lynch Hartman. Uh, to celebrate the fourth year of her passing. Um, and we'll see how it goes, but, but that would be very sweet, I think, um, to, to honor and acknowledge her in particular. Um, and I first met Blanche when I was probably a year or two into practice. And, um, She, I had a couple of discussions with her where she gave me similar advice, but both times it really kind of, um, really helped me. Um, and it had to do something with being caught in an, an obsessive kind of thinking pattern, like not being able to put something down and feeling kind of haunted and tormented by, um, thinking about a particular relationship, I guess, in this, in this instance. And looking back, I think um, it's sometimes when we don't, uh, or we're not able to, or we don't yet understand how to be with, in this fundamental level, our emotional life, that I think our emotions can spur a thought. And if that energy is strong enough, the thought can just keep repeating. And we get caught on the thought because maybe we don't yet know how or, or aren't able in the moment to, to just actually drop into the discomfort. And even when we do that, there's no guarantee that our mind won't keep obsessing about whatever. But um, I, I, so I brought her this problem and she, um, she laughed, I mean, she laughed, she just laughed and smiled and said and told me a kind of um, story of her own that was similar. Um, but it ended with the advice that 
when I noticed the arising of um, thoughts about this particular relationship, as soon as I noticed them, to kind of meet that um, arising with a kind of a kind of question and a kind of knowing that, and in her phrasing, it was she said it very simply, like, you know what happens when you get on that train. To me, getting on the train means just following the momentum of that habit energy. She said, you know what happens when you get on that train. Uh, that train ends in misery, like last stop, next stop, misery. You know, um, you can choose to not get on that train. Wow. So at the end of this talk that Suzuki Roshi gave in 1967, he, he was joking about um, how even Dogen felt like um, emotions are at the core of Zen practice. And um, he sort of laughed that, you know, he said something like, people uh, question whether Dogen was really enlightened because he was so human, uh, because he talked about the sort of humanness. Um, and he, interestingly, like, a lot of this talk came out of reading some Dogen in uh, the Mountains and Rivers um, Sutra and uh, being a little stunned that in the midst of this beautiful um, explication of nature and, and kind of all beings moving, mountains walking, um, Dogen suddenly took a, took a right turn to my, to my feeling um, and launched into some sectarian um, berating of, of people who don't understand and um, don't get the way. And, uh, and it's not the first time, you know, uh, in Zui Monkey, a lot of Dogen's writings in that, to me, were sort of like really angry rants about um, <clears throat> those who don't get it or something. But I think in, in those rants or in expressing um, anger or kind of frustration, um, Dogen was kind of allowing his own humanness. That just because we're angry, it doesn't mean it's bad necessarily. Like there can be legitimate purposes for anger or legitimate reasons to be sad. Um, so anyway, Suzuki Roshi sort of joked that people thought maybe Dogen wasn't enlightened because he was so human. Um, and I think, to me, Zenke um, also led with this humanness, um, this deep understanding of what it's actually like to be a human, um, rather than some ideal, some spiritual ideal of holiness and enlightenment. It's actually... Um, spend time with our humanness and the actual um, experiences of having a human body and living a human life. In response to the koan, or this is um, Robert Aiken in his commentary on this koan about ordinary mind is the way. Um, he says that um,
He says, when Zhaozhou asked, should I direct myself toward it? Should I kind of do something to, to realize that ordinary mind is the way? Nanshtran was responded, if you direct yourself, you betray your own practice. Nanshuan is saying, in effect, you are setting up a division here, one seeking the other, a dualism. Then practice is not a matter of grasping at something. Of course, he is not denying the importance of practice, but Quan Yin has not directed herself toward or away from the Tao. Quan Yin, in her diligent practice, is all right, just as she is. And to me, this just as she is, or just as we are, includes all these crazy energies and the way we experience them. I love this line. He says, Nanchuan patiently brings Zhaozhou back, brings us all back to the point with with his ensuing response, This is Robert Aiken again speaking. He says, I used to think this koan was very discursive. There's too many words here for for Robert Aiken's liking. He says, how could it enlighten anyone? Surely Zen words should be sharp, like three pounds of flax. He says, I still feel that Nanshuan is being very grandmotherly. But that is the nature of the true teacher. Patient beyond reason repeating the same message over and over. He says, sink into mood, settle into mood, let everything go. Maybe that's his message that he keeps repeating his own teaching career. He says, the ash from that incense fills several pots. So in this grandmotherliness of of many teachers, there's a kind of just repeating the same thing and and patiently waiting for some kind of mutual understanding to arise. So the fact that Blanche kind of twice told me the same story, and it was twice helpful to me, um, kind of was even funnier because I was going through her book and she tells the same story in the book. So I'll I'll give it to you in her words. She says, I find humor is extremely helpful in my practice. That was a real discovery to me. I didn't realize that I was making myself miserable with my thinking. It completely escaped my notice that until one day when I was in a sashin at Green Gulch and was on my way to the Zendo, I passed a pond that is right next to the Zendo. It was early twilight of morning, which is a time that I'm very fond of. The mist was rising from the pond. There was a great blue heron on the shore. It was a beautiful morning, as sometimes happens at Green Gulch. I went on into the Zendo feeling really, really good. And a little while later, I was feeling really, really bad. And I thought, wait, wait, nothing has happened. I have just been sitting here. I've just been thinking. I did it all myself. Now, how did I do that? 
She says, I had been telling myself an old story. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. I don't want to go there anymore. If I did it myself, then I'm going to stop doing it. I suddenly made myself miserable by kind of repeating some old story in my head when I was you know, enjoying a nice, beautiful morning. If I had created that or had something to do with it, then I'm going to try not to do it. So she says, whoa, wait a minute. I don't want to go there anymore. If I did it to myself, then I'm going to stop doing it. And as I continued sitting, pretty soon that thought came up again. And I, w and I went, oh, I don't want to get on that train. That train takes me to misery. I don't want to go there. So maybe with some um, gradual awareness of how we do this to ourselves, how we find a way to kind of attach to a story or a thought and repeat it and repeat it and, and sort of begin to notice how you know we become just uncomfortable. Um, you know, maybe we have a choice. Maybe we can skillfully walk this line between allowing, being, acknowledging what is, and skillfully meeting it and seeing what happens when we do. Maybe skillful, skillfully meeting it, or certainly in this instance, was for her to to kind of realize, I don't have to keep repeating this thing that's making me miserable. And even, you know, again, even in the light of that insight, it doesn't mean that, oh, I get it, and so now I'm good the rest of my life. Maybe we fall back into repeating that story and feeling miserable and self-judging, God, I did it again, you know, even though I know better now, I've had this insight, and yet I still fell back into this pivot. Yeah, I think that's practice, too. So I'll, I'll mention one last thing, um, and that is, uh, again, in this Pema Chodron book, she mentions that when we make this effort to control um, our experience by not kind of investing in it. Um, we, have to, we have to find a way to do that out of self-compassion, out of self-love, out of loving kindness. We have to anchor it with loving kindness. And if we don't, then we're, um, it feels like a straitjacket. It feels like a trap, like I'm just trying to like make myself not become miserable. But if it's anchored to, you know, because it's painful, because I, I care enough about this being or all of these beings that I choose not to get on that train. So maybe we can um, end with the chant and then have a little bit of a discussion. 
Um, so feel free to stick around if you have questions. But we'll go ahead and do the chant now. 